0: If you would uh, like to turn to to John chapter 14, I expect to be in there at some point. And you can see I mentioned that this morning um, that we were going to deal with uh, the most important question and um, there's different ways of phrasing this question, but I've phrased it this particular way. I thought we might think about this just tonight. Years ago, a lot of years ago, I was in, in uh, London on a on a work trip. It was, uh, I was at an exposition of photographic equipment or something. And um, <coughs> I was staying in a hotel with another f- forensic photographer. It was a very nice hotel, but in the morning, <coughs> whenever I woke up, there was something scuttling about the bed. And, and then I realised it was a cockroach. <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't that nice a hotel. But anyway... <laughs> And uh, I'd never seen a cockroach before. I never knew it was so big. I mean, anyway, this thing was um, Scotland about. So I decided to be diplomatic. And, and as, I was, as we were signing out of the hotel, I went up to the concierge at the, at the reception. And I said, excuse me. And he said, Heh? <laughs> and he even looked like Manuel. <laughs> I'm not joking with the white smoking jacket and everything. All oh, right. I said, and there was an American couple beside me, and I said, So I didn't want to embarrass the hotel. I mean, right. these things happen. And I said, There's a cockroach in my bedroom. <laughs> 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 I said, And then I remembered we had just been to Marseille that summer with a Gia Glow outreach team. And we would be, Was been one day off in the couple of weeks we were there where we sat in, the, uh, in one of the little parks looking over Marseille, having a picnic with all the French Christians. And there was this almighty din going on. And of course, <laughs> what is that noise? And I said to one of the French guys that was with us, a guy called Gilles, and I said, Gilles, what is that noise? He said, what noise? I said, <laughs> like that. Uh, and he didn't hear it. So, I don't know. So I went around looking, and eventually I found one. And it was a little creature. And I said, I found the creature. Oh, he said, that noise is a cigal, Seagal. I said, seagal. Oh, so I went, and I said, I found one. And all these French people suddenly got interested. They had lived with the sound of this for years and never saw one. You know, it's like, you know, you hear a grasshopper, and maybe some people haven't seen one. So I was looking at this cigal on the tree because the same color as the tree, it's hard to see. And then all these French oh, ah. anyway, back to Manuel. So, whenever I'm talking to uh, this, the concierge, and uh, it suddenly came back to me, Oh, yes, there were these creatures that looked a bit like a cockroach actually in France. So, I said, And I don't know, maybe he's Spanish, I, I don't, maybe he's Portuguese, I don't know, but I certainly don't speak any of those languages. So, but maybe Seagal's like that. So, I said. Seagal in my bedroom. You want Seagal for you? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I just walked out and you know, <laughs> I had left it below an upturned cup. Somebody would find it. There's a reason for me telling you the story about the cigal. We call them cicadas. We'll come back to that shortly. And uh, in John chapter 14, let's just pray before we read. Father, we just thank you for your word. It's living. This is your living word. Empires, nations, tyrants have tried to burn it, destroy it, get rid of it, ban it, abolish it. And yet, this is your living word. And Lord, we have it before us in freedom to look at it, to read it, to preach from it, to study it, to meditate on it, to feed on it. And we pray tonight that, Lord, it would feed our hearts. And that, Lord, as we look at your word and consider who you are, Lord, that it would change us and make us more like him. And that for some here who don't know Jesus as Savior, Lord, you would open their hearts and that they would see Jesus in his name. Amen. So John chapter 14, Jesus is speaking and he has some of the disciples with him and he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, or you believe in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, are many mansions, many places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. So I want to consider about the, the most important question, I've phrased it that way as I say uh, and what that might be. There was a film one time that Clint Eastwood was in, I don't know what the film was but I remember seeing this clip and in it the character of Clint Eastwood is asked the question by another actor and the actor, I don't know what was happening, and um, but. The actor says, well, he says, do you mind if I ask you a hard question? That was sort of an American accent for those of you who didn't. And Clint Eastwood turns around and he says, well, ain't no such thing as a hard question. Just hard answers. I don't know why that stuck in my mind. But but it is sort of true. I mean, you can ask any question. I mean, it's not hard to ask any question. Even the question you don't understand, it's the answers that are difficult. And, and in the book of Job, uh, if you were listening on on Thursday night, you'll realize that uh, we were looking at the book of Job. And, and you could spend a long time with Job. So, I mean, you think about Job, it's probably the oldest book in our Bible. So he didn't have Isaiah or Psalms. He didn't have kings or second kings or Samuel. He didn't have Esther. He had none of those books. He didn't have the Song of Solomon. He certainly didn't have the New Testament. He had none of those things. His, His knowledge of God was largely by what was around him and what he could see, the evidences of a creatorial God. But he had a lot of questions. He had a lot of questions. He suffers. He is, he is so disfigured with boils and a disease that's come across him, and he's lost his family, he's lost his home. The only, the only thing he really has is his wife, and she tells him just to curse God and die because she sort of lost hope in him. And Job doesn't give up on God, but he has lots of questions. Some of the questions that he asks, why did I not perish at birth? Why is there light given to those in misery? Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? Why have you made me your target? Why do you not pardon my offenses and forgive my sins? Why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? Why do the wicked live on growing old and increasing in power? Why should I struggle in vain? Why does the Almighty not set time? So there are lots of questions that Job asks God he's he's blunt with God he's suffering he doesn't understand it now we're not going to the whole premise of the story of Job how it is his comforters so-called try to persuade him he's suffering because he's been bad that he's a sinner and therefore God is just punishing him we're not going to go into that But he says, no, that's not the reason I'm holding. I don't understand this. And I will ask God about it, but I will still hold on to him. I'll still trust him because I see his goodness in nature. And so at the end of the book of Job, um, God indeed does commend Job for his faith, but he never answers his questions. In fact, you know what happens at the end of Job? At the end of Job, God asks another seventy-seven questions of Job. There are questions um, about uh, cosmology, questions about oceanography, questions about uh, about nature, questions about meteorology, questions about meteorology, questions about astronomy. Lots of questions. You can look it up in, in the chapters thirty-eight to the end. And lots of questions that God asks Job: Do you know who put the stars in place? Do you know? And he asks God or Jacob or Job all these questions, and he doesn't really get his answer. And there are many questions that bewilder us. And I was just thinking: I, mean, I was chatting to Jelly another day. I was reading about cuckoos. You know, it's amazing how cuckoos are born in a nest, never see their parents. And then when they hatch in some other bird's nest, the cuckoos from England fly down through France, Portugal and Spain, over Africa, over the Sahara, flying 50 to 60 hours over the desert on the wing to get to. No one knew for until the last 10 years where they went. And it's the Congo. But the cuckoos from Scotland and Wales, they go a different route. They go out to Italy and fly down to Africa that way. And they end up in the very same roost that their parents left. How is that possible? There's, there's hardly a day goes by. I think I mentioned it this morning. Hardly a day goes by. I don't look up some encyclopedia for some little thing I've read or heard and think, well, I want to know more about that. And quite often you don't really get the answer. There's so many questions that puzzle us. I want to just leave a couple with you before I go on to what I believe is the most important question. Just some things that we think about. I remember listening to John Lennox speaking, and he was speaking to someone who was an atheist who didn't believe in God and, and was trying to understand it. And he said, well, it's funny, you being a physicist, you can't even explain energy. What is energy? Well, we know what it does. Energy is the means of producing work. So it'll make an electric engine turn, Uh, It'll make things happen. It'll heat your fire. You heat your house. But no one really can explain what energy is. Now, if you know the first law of thermodynamics, to sound fancy, but uh, it's just the law of conservation of energy, it tells us that energy cannot be created, nor can it be destroyed. All you can do is change a form of, of energy into another form. Um, so, solar power is a good one. There's solar energy goes onto your solar power and changes into electrical power. But it, it doesn't. You can't destroy energy. It may disperse, but you can't destroy it. And no one can really explain. And cosmologists today explain it like this in what they call the quantum uncertainty. In other words, a theory that allows energy to emerge from literally nowhere. In other words, they have no idea. (laughs) Physicists can't even explain energy. We started off talking about my friend the cicada. I was listening one time uh, to radio to a couple of mathematicians and a naturalist discussing the life cycle of the cicada. This is the little creature was making all that noise in Marseille. And uh, For years, naturalists knew that, that the life cycle of a cicada is that it, it lives underground for 13 or 17 years. And while it's down there, it lives off the sap of the roots of the plants above. And it burrows about in the mud as a very different creature to that Then every 13 years or every 17 years, never every 12 years, 13 years, or sorry, 14 years, 15, 16, never 18 years, always, only every 13 years or every 17 years, the cicadas emerge from the ground at the same time, and they have wings, and they fly, and they breed, and they mate, and they die, and the forest creatures where these cicadas live, live off the carcasses of the very high protein, valuable cicada bodies. And for years, people, scientists and naturalists thought, well, why every 13 years and every 17 years? Well, I don't know if you've worked it out, but you probably know if you thought about it, but the numbers 13 and 17 are prime numbers. A prime number is a number that can only be divided by one and itself. And prime numbers are amazing. It's what makes up your uh, uh, encryption in, your, in software that makes your computer safe. But prime numbers are amazing things. But how does the cicada know to come out of the ground at a prime number? And why 13 and why 17? Well, it turns out that the creatures that live off the the cicadas emerge every first year, on the first year, on the fifth year, on the 15th year, all divisibles of 15 and visibles of 10. So if the predators of the cicadas were to emerge at the same, or if the cicadas were to emerge at the same time as the predators of the cicadas, the cicadas would be wiped out. They couldn't exist. There's no defense system. And so they would just be eaten. But if they weren't eaten at all, if the, pre- if the predators that feed off the cicadas didn't eat them at all, then they would become a plague and destroy forest habitats. But God has so made it that the cicada emerges every 13th year and every 17th year, allowing predators to feed on them every 51 years. Beyond that, it's been proven mathematically that the cicada would become a plague. Isn't that fascinating? I read a scientist saying... Isn't evolution so intelligent? (laughs) Right. Isn't the designer, the creator? And these things that we puzzle over, these amazing things that happen in nature and in the world, are some really big questions. But to get back to the most important question, it would be handy if I put my notes in some kind of order, wouldn't it? To go back to the most important question, I want to ask this. Well, I can put it the way a pastor put it, back in 1855, he was speaking, he was a pastor in his church in America, no, it was York, actually, in England, and he put it like this. It's about knowing God, because I think that this is the most important question. How can a man, how can a woman how can a boy, how can a girl, how can a person know God? Job deals with it. Job wanted to know God and to know why things were happening. The pastor in 1855 put it like this. Knowing God is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity. So deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can compass and grapple with. In them we feel a kind of self-content and go our way with the thought, behold, I am wise. But when we come to this master science, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depth and that our eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away with the thought and solemn exclamation, I am but of yesterday and I know nothing. That was Charles Haddon Spurgeon, 20 years old pastor of a young church. You ever lay on your back and looked up something about looking into the sky when the stars are out and we've talked about this recently and you try to understand what you're looking at. Blazing fires millions of miles away. Millions don't even touch it. And you try to conceive of infinity. What it means that the universe goes on and on without end. Some scientists tell us that it has an end. Others say that but then what's beyond that? If there's an, It just doesn't. And others say that no it's endless. And, but we look into that and we try to conceive and our minds are not equipped. We don't have the apparatus mentally to conceive what infinity is. So if we can't conceive what infinity is, how can we conceive what eternity is or what or who the eternal living God is? And yet there's nothing more important in our our lives. There's nothing more important in your life, nothing more important in my life than getting to know this infinite, eternal God. Not only that, but having a relationship with him. How's that even possible? We can't understand infinity. Eternity's just its brother. How can we understand that? A snail might as well have a meaningful conversation with Albert Einstein. And that still wouldn't be the, the vastness of the gulf between humanity and who God is. We have no conception of the grandeur and the sovereignty and the might and the power of just who God is. And yet the most important thing in our lives is to know him. So this is the paradox. God made me to know him. And life only makes sense when I do know him. And yet I'm far too far removed from him to know him job struggled with that very thing i don't know if you can read that i'll read it out job chapter 9 listen but how can a mortal be righteous before god the one wished to dispute with him he could not answer him one time out of a thousand his wisdom is profound his power is vast who has resisted him And come out unscathed. He moves mountains without their knowing it and overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth from its place and makes its pillars tremble. He speaks to the sun and it does not shine. He seals off the light of the stars. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He is the maker of the bear and Orion, the Pleiades, and the constellations of the south. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. When he passes me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. Job's talking about this vast gulf that cannot be bridged between him as a mortal human being and the God and maker of everything that is. You know, whenever there's a gulf Between two parties that are far apart from one another. What do you do? You bring in an arbiter. You bring in an arbiter. Now, if it turns out that the gulf between the two parties also includes the fact that they speak different languages, you bring in an arbiter and a translator or a linguist. So we have here on our own, we church Monica, who does that as a a job. she stands between someone who speaks a language and someone who speaks another language and she arbitrates between them as a linguist, as a translator. When there's a gulf between people that can't be bridged, you need, now if it's a legal case, you then bring in an advocate. You need a, an arbiter, you need a translator, you need an advocate. And that is exactly what Job was longing for. In fact, let me read you this, if you can see this as well, as I put up on the screen. Job says this very thing as well, later on in the chapter. He is not a man like me, that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. If only there were someone to arbitrate between us, to lay his hand upon us both. Someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more. Then I would speak up without fear of him. But as it now stands with me, I cannot. It's almost prophetic. Job is looking forward to someone who would stand in the gap between his mortality and the sovereignty of God. He made us to know him. We were made in his image. The purpose, in fact if there's only one purpose in our lives, it is to know God. Yes, you can go about and enjoy your work and enjoy food and go about your daily life Life, be married, have children, those things are good, but your principal purpose that God made you for, the principal purpose that each one of us was designed for, was to know Him. But we have become His enemies. We are all of us broken. We're willful. In open warfare against His authority. And this whole world is in a state of lawlessness. I don't even need to give you examples of that. You have got your own radios, televisions and newspapers. We despair sometimes at just how lawless it's becoming. There's open rebellion in this world and every human heart against God. And not understanding the character of God, we project instead onto him some kind of larger vision of ourselves. And we see in that reflected mirror someone who is a terror, a dictator, a tyrant who seeks to crush and cruelly defeat our attempts to just govern ourselves. And tragically, the one who loves us more than we can possibly imagine has been painted in colours of our own making and it more, no more resembles him in this twisted portrait in some kind of fractured synthetic cubist painting by Picasso that no more looks like or is who God is and so God takes a prerogative we can't know him because of who we are because of our brokenness because of our willfulness because of our rebellion and all those things but God comes to make himself known to us what does he do he invades planet Earth in secret. He comes in disguise, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. He chooses a little known part of the world, obscure and quiet. And a young couple who have been estranged from their families And out in the wild, not even in a home, a baby is born. A human baby. And as a young man, when he's grown and in his 30s, this young man brings and assembles about himself a motley group of really quite a motley group of people, not teachers, not lawyers, not academics, just a motley group of guys. girls and begins to teach them the most important question about God. He, He speaks about God, Jesus speaks about God as someone who's filled with love and compassion for his creation. He talks about a forgiving God, a kindly God. He talks about a God who who has filled with love for those who have rebelled against him. He himself is kind. He himself is gentle. He's a pleasure to know. He's a friend to society's He's outcasts. He's a magnet for children. He's filled with life and wisdom and laughter, and yet he shares in the tears of the hurting and the suffering. And he's unrelenting in his stand against hypocrisy and lies and pretense. And he demonstrates an obvious relationship with the living, infinite, eternal God. And he prays in a way that these motley group of disciples have never seen before. It's not a way the Pharisees pray. It's not a way they've been accustomed to see their families pray. He prays intimately with the living God. The maker of the cosmos. The one between man and him. There's such a gulf. And Jesus has an intimate prayer life relationship. And he calls him father. He calls the living God his father. Unbelievably, he calls him Abba, father. And were we Jews living in the first century, hearing him call his father Abba, and were we there and hearing it in English, he would be saying, Daddy. That's the relationship Jesus had with the eternal God. This is stunning. The disciples are enraptured with this. No one. In fact, even Jesus. Some who went out to arrest Jesus one day, they just come back shaking their head. No one ever spoke like that before. This is is unheard of. We've never met anyone like this. And the disciples, as we started off in John 14, are around him and they are just, they just can't get enough, even though they don't understand it. And so we come to John 14. And he continues, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except Through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Are you you getting the import of what he's saying? The most important question is to know God, whom we cannot know, it seems. And Jesus said, From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And I can just, I can, I can visualise this. It, it, it's so visceral as, as I see it. You can just see the Lord Jesus turning to, to Philip. As Philip asks, well, you know, the Father you've been praying to, and, such, and you say that we've seen him, just... If we could just see him, Jesus, that would be enough. And Jesus looks at Philip. Don't you know me, Philip? Do you get that? What is Jesus saying? Don't you know me, Philip? Do you know who you're looking at? unknowable, the unseeable, infinite, eternal, holy, Father, God. Don't you know me? This is an unbelievable truth. 800 years before this, and at Christmas time, we so love to read these verses. But the, the man who was a prophet, Isaiah, was given words to write that we still read today, some 2,800 years later. But they were 800 years before the birth of Christ. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given and the government will be upon his shoulders and he shall be called wonderful counsellor, everlasting father, prince of peace. Now God who cannot be known, cannot be seen, is one. We talk about the Trinity, yet he's three persons but he's one, indivisible, yet three. It's a mystery, it's another puzzle, a question we will never get to the depth of. And yet in those three aspects of the fullness of God, we see them in the life of Jesus. Everlasting Father. Look what... Look what Philip was saying, what Jesus was saying to Philip. Don't you know me? Show us the Father. That will be enough for for us. Don't you know me, Philip? And he shall be called Everlasting Father. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. This is coming to the point where, where God who has invaded in the shape of flesh by his only son, he's now revealing to this motley crew. He's taking off the disguise. Now he who has come into his creation as fully as a man now exposes who he is. Wonderful counsellor. Later on in in the same chapter in John, Jesus said, but the counsellor The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you. And here we are seeing the the fullness of Godhead in Jesus Christ. And finally, he's the Prince of Peace. And Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. This world is at war with God. Sinful, we're broken, we're dysfunctional, governments, nations, we're at war with one another. The only thing we do well is to kill each other. We are a broken, deluded and blinded people. We're shackled by the weight of the guilt we carry and we blame everyone but ourselves. And on the other side... God who longs to come to us. But because he's absolutely pure and holy and just, he must first declare and execute the sentence on the other party. A sentence that would destroy us all. The soul that sins shall surely die. But in between, here is the perfect man, the perfect arbiter, the perfect advocate, between the two parties who can bring the two together he is the prince of peace the man who stands in the gap the man who is god and god in flesh there's an amazing man called dag hammersgold nearly finished and i don't know if you know some of them recognize that name he died in 1961 he was the secretary general of the United Nations he has some wonderful things you can read about him one of the things he said was this do not seek death death will find you but seek the road which makes death a fulfillment he was killed in an aircraft crash in the Congo he was trying to bring together the Congo uh, government along with rebels the Katangese, who were fighting one another and there was Tens of thousands of people, and he was a peacemaker. Dag Hammarskjöld was a wonderful peacemaker. He travelled all around the world as the UN Secretary General, trying to bring priests to places that were killing to play, people who were killing one another. In the air, he died in an aircraft crash, which purportedly at the time was an accident. But President Harry Truman later said, Hammarskjöld was on the point of getting something done. When they killed him. Notice that I said, when they killed him. At the cross, there's an advocate bringing the two parties together, the go between. Jesus, who represents all of humanity, perfect humanity, and facing his own Father, he who did no sin himself bears all the sins of the world on his own body on the cross. And then he bows his precious head. And God then expends all the pent up, all the deposited wrath due to who we are and what we've done and our secret sins and our wickednesses and our hypocrisies and our lies and our cheats and our double dealings and our selfishness and our willfulness and our rebelliousness and our pride and our greed and everything else that makes us so corrupt within our hearts. God expends all of his wrath on his perfect advocate son who stands in between, the only one who could, could, because he was the only one perfect, and only God could take the wrath of God. And so only Jesus, who was God in flesh, could take our, the wrath that I deserve. I know I deserve it. I do know that. Sometimes I feel good about myself, but it's not very often. Most of the time I know who I am. And when you know who you are, you know who you need. When you know who you are, you know who you need. And so Jesus, the Prince of Peace, settles the score, opens the door, and makes his way to the Father for all who believe. (laughs) He did it. And Derek mentioned it this morning about Jesus, the Pontifex, the bridge. Between the two. He did it. And unlike Dag Hammerscold, who was undeniably brave, but unlike his effort, Jesus has not just got, like Truman said, at the point of getting something done. He got it done. (laughs) He got it done. He made, he brought us to his father. And the one who had this intimate relationship with his father brings us into that interim relationship that we can know him through him and introduces us to his father and we find him to be kind and compassionate and loving and will forgive our sins because he's expended his anger on Jesus to go between. I'm just finishing now. But on the 21st of October 1919 Historians among you really know what happened then. It was the end of the First World War and it was the signing of the Treaty of Versailles. It was signed, actually, I hadn't realized this, Janet and John. We were over in Paris recently and um, we walked in the Hall of Mirrors in the Palace to Versailles. It was in the Hall of Mirrors that the Germans and the Axis forces sat down with the Allies, the British and the Allied forces. And the Germans and the Allies signed the Treaty of Versailles to end the war. It was unconditional, in a sense, surrender. Well, but it was unconditional. And the Germans had to admit that they were the aggressors, that they caused it, that it was their fault. We would call that repentance in a way. They had to write down, we did it, it was us caused it. We brought about the the death of eight million people. And then they had to pay reparations. In today's money, 248 billion pounds. The Prince of Peace calls us to a very different treaty. (laughs) Jesus calls us, yes, to repent, to admit we're the aggressors. I am a sinner. I see that now. And I will never come to answer the most important question, how can I know God unless I come through Jesus Christ? But he gives us a very different treaty. This time, the victor dies. And the aggressor goes free. And has no reparations to pay. Quite the opposite. Isn't that just unbelievable? You see, Romans says this, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? And we're finished. Dag Hammersgold said this, just before he died. Forgiveness is the answer to the child's dream of a miracle by which what is broken is made whole again. What is soiled is made clean again. And that's how you get to know God, through the forgiveness that God brought himself and his son in himself on the cross when we believe that when we understand the only way we're going to answer the most important question is by coming to know jesus christ and there may be folks listening at home thank you for joining us along with us here in Valley halbert gospel hall we're delighted you've been able to follow along this far but this is a challenge for us all how do we get to know this god Jesus said now this is eternal life that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent the most important question how do we know God by knowing Jesus Christ let's just pray and as we pray I'm going to make a prayer that may be similar to something you might be able to pray maybe folks at home as you're watching this in the quietness of your own room, if you want to know him, this is something you could pray. So I'll start off with this prayer and then we'll close. (coughs) Lord Jesus, I know that I am a sinner. I believe I'm broken inside my heart I know I do wrong things and have thought wrong things and so I know I'm an enemy to God Lord Jesus thank you that you died for my sins I believe in you And I put my trust in you for all of my life. You are Lord. Please save me and forgive my sins. Father, we thank you for Jesus who makes the unknowable God knowable because we see in the face of Jesus Christ the very life of God. Lord Jesus, thank you that you did what you did for us. There was no mystery what was ahead of you. You knew about the pain of dying on a cross, that it wasn't just going to be nails and hanging and human agony, but it was the punishment that God was going to put upon you, God, your own Father, who was going to be punishing our sins and knowing that horrendous future you set your face like a flint and led the way to calvary thank you father we just pray for everyone here tonight lord you would re-excite our hearts to know what it is to be saved Remind us how wonderful it is to be known by God and to know him. And Father, there may be some who have never yet met met that choice just of saying and asking for Jesus to be their advocate, their go-between, their saviour, that they might come to know God. Help them to make that step of faith. And maybe some who are watching online, Lord, you would reach out through the power of the media and Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, convict and save and bring a new child into the kingdom. In his name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for coming tonight. It's been lovely to, to just share these things of, with you in my heart. Oh, sorry, to, I'm very long that I know. But um, God bless you for your patience.